We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Right, good evening. We're here with a special year-end edition of Taiwan This Week. And we have two guests in the studio today. First of all, Jane Rickards from The Economist. Good evening, Gavin. And Ross Feingold from the Washington-based DC International Advisory. Good evening. And of course, me, Gavin Phipps. Of course, we've been talking to you for most of the year about events in Taiwan on a weekly basis. But now we have to come up with our five top events of the year. We won't say they all happened in Taiwan, but I mean, 90% of them did and one of them didn't. But it's about Taiwan. So let's begin with a Ma Xi meeting in Singapore on November the 7th, where, of course, President Ma Ying-jeou became the first ROC head of state to meet with a Communist Party head of state from China since 1949 or sometime in that era. So, Ross, meeting, top five. Why? Well, well it, it merits mention simply because uh, it was such a historic event. As you mentioned, the two leaders uh, from each side of the strait hadn't met uh, since the end of the Civil War. And uh, as much as people might be disappointed in President Ma's administration, um, how they've handled both domestic issues as well as cross-straits issues, the, the fact that uh, he was able to have this meeting with the leader of uh, mainland China really well, was a significant event. So it definitely makes the top list for uh, big events in Taiwan this year. All right, Jane, your opinion of the Ma Xi meeting? Um, I would agree with Ross just for its um, historic significance. Um, I think it was definitely more of a symbolic meeting than a substantial meeting. Um, it was announced in the media yesterday that they've set up a cross-strait hotline, which Ma proposed at the meeting, and Xi Jinping has followed through on that. So while there have been a few substantial results Results. I still think the meeting was heavy on symbolism, but for symbolism, it can't be beat, you know, after, what, 60 years? Of not talking to each other, yes. basically, yes. Yes, no meeting between leaders for 60 years, is it? Right, so not, not yeah. only is it significant as a historic event, but it's significant mm-hmm. as, as a precedent, and, mm-hmm. and obviously we'll all be watching next year to see mm-hmm. if whoever wins Taiwan's presidential election uh, will be able to have a similar meeting. Well, that was one of the, mm-hmm. the precedent you talked about, Ross, was, of course, mm-hmm. the idea, because, of course, they, they believe with this meeting that took place between the head of states of both sides of the Taiwan Strait, it could institutionalize future talks between the two sides. Of course, the breakthrough, as far as I'm concerned, will be if a Chinese head of state meets with a DPP head of state. Yep, and we won't know until um, they, they, the, the new leadership takes office in Taiwan in, in the middle of next year, and they begin these kinds of discussions with, with the uh, officials of the if, mainland. If there's a new government. I mean, if there is a new government, Jane, and it's the DPP, I mean, do you see more significance put on a meeting between Tsai Ing-wen and Xi Jinping than Ma Ying-jeou and Xi Jinping? Oh, definitely, because um, China's always insisted that Taiwan accepts the 1992 consensus and Tsai Ing-wen so far won't. So um, if if Xi Jinping was able to meet with Tsai Ing-wen, it would be hugely significant because, first of all, it shows that China's relaxing on its requirement that Taiwan insists is part of one China because if he's able to recognise a leader who doesn't accept that principle, the one China principle. And secondly, I think it would show that the China, China officially is reaching out to Taiwan as a whole and not just one political party. And, of course, there are lots of under-the-counter meetings with the DPP and DPP officials are increasingly having contact with Chinese officials, whether it's, say, city-to-city exchanges, like, say, the Tainan mayor went to Shanghai a few months ago, things like that. But um, if there was able to be sort of such a high-level institutionalised meeting between the two leaders, it would show that China's embracing Taiwan as a whole. 
I think one thing we should also um, watch out for as part of this uh, potential for continuing the meetings is where would the meeting be if they were mm-hmm. to meet? Would it be in Singapore again or uh, would it be in Taipei? Would it be in Beijing? Would it be some other uh, city on the mainland or some other third country? That's a good question and one we'll mm-hmm. have to wait for the answer for. Now, in not such good news out of Taiwan this year was the economic situation. We've got a plummeting GDP growth figure. We've got bad news on trade agreements. And we've got even worse news on other things. That's right. Exports have been falling uh, for for most of the year. So that's a very significant issue for Taiwan's uh, economy, for job figures here in Taiwan. Uh, And people are very nervous about this issue. And and it's going to be something that the next president, whoever it is, is, and and their team is going to have to work really hard to figure out ways how to uh, change that, this slide in GDP and, and exports. And, and, Maybe there isn't a direct connection, but uh, Taiwan is increasingly isolated from some of the regional trade agreements like TPP or RCEP, which uh, there are differing opinions in Taiwan about whether or not Taiwan should be a a member. But uh, uh, Taiwan was also excluded from the AIIB, the Infrastructure Bank organized by China. So there's a question about how to recharge Taiwan's economy and how to get Taiwan exports up and how to get Taiwan plugged into these regional agreements. And it's uh, something the next government will have to address. Yes, and Jane, you've got all the GDP figures. figures that they are. Yes, for me, one of the top stories of the year was on October the 30th when Taiwan's GDP recorded a negative year-on-year growth of 1.01%. It didn't only fail to meet a government forecast of 0.1% positive growth, but it was the lowest since the second quarter of 2009 when the world was in the global financial crisis or feeling the aftermath of the global financial crisis, so that's pretty serious. And in the third quarter, merchandise exports fell 13.86% from a year earlier in US dollar terms, which is quite a big drop. Um, so, yeah, for me, it was the third quarter GDP growth. And shortly after that, um, Cabinet announced a short-term stimulus package of about $4 billion, new Taiwan dollars. Um, and the government says that the GDP growth for this year will now be 1.06%, and most recently the Academia Sinica has lowered it to 0.75%. And there are a lot of things going on here. Um, the low growth tests the premise that closer ties with China are needed for growth. Um, there's also there's competition with China and the so-called red supply chain that, you know, that um, Taiwan and Chinese have a symbiotic um, economic relationship that Taiwan provided the technical know-how and China provided the lower end manufacturing, but increasingly China's becoming a competitor at Taiwan's expense. And as Rossit mentioned, there's also exclusion from pre- free trade agreements. I, I think an important part of the economic story that that is developing as we speak, because it's been ongoing and it will continue into next year, is is the value of the currency as, as mm. Taiwan's competitors around the region race to devalue their mm. currencies to increase their exports. Uh, we should probably be expecting Taiwan to continue uh, to devalue the currency, even if government officials deny it and say it's it's all based on market mechanism. But but we know that there is government intervention, and uh, I think most experts are expecting that the Taiwan dollar is going to depreciate against uh, U.S. dollar next year. Right. Well, we've had we've had a marsh a meeting between two heads of state, the Marshy meeting, as it became known. We've had bad economic news. Let's look quickly at some political news. Let's begin our politics with the KMT, who, of course, did hope to continue running the country, nominated a candidate and then removed the candidate. Well, it was it was certainly unusual. Uh, Eric Ju became chairman at the beginning of the year after the KMT performed poorly in the local elections uh, last November. 
and uh, the party went through its normal mechanism of, of a primary to select a candidate. There was only one candidate to select in the primary, um, Hong Xiuju, and she became the candidate. But uh, almost as soon as she became the candidate, there were people within the party who criticized statements she made with regard to China policy. They criticized her performance uh, on the campaign trail. And, and there was this growing voice, uh, somewhat mysterious, uh, within the party to change the candidate. And eventually that's what happened, as unusual as it sounds. And Eric Chu said he had a responsibility as the chairman to take over as the presidential candidate. I mean, Jane, let's, let's, let's continue to stay with the KMT here and the changing of the candidate. Obviously, there was dissension in the KMT about Hong Shouju, who was the deputy legislative speaker. I mean, why was there dissension? Well, basically, she's a mainlander and she's identified with the deep blue factions. And she, I don't think she did enough to move to the centre. I think what strikes me most of all is Eric Ju's mismanagement of the whole thing. He probably should never have fielded Hong Shouju in the first place. Um, and um, there were... You know, about five lawmakers, uh, five KMT members were expelled in around July and there are all these reports of lawmakers in the South threatening to quit if um, she remained at the helm or she was the figurehead of their campaign because they just couldn't get voters to identify with it, with her. Yes, that was an issue, of course. Now, yes. we have to take a short break for these very, very important messages, but we'll be right back with number three of our top five stories of the year, this time focusing on the DPP. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and of course we're going through our top five stories from here in Taiwan of 2015. We've just covered the KMT and politics, now let's look at the DPP and what some are calling the year of Tsai Ing-wen. Yeah, Tsai Ing-wen continues to lead in the polls. The Taiwan think tank, which leans towards the DPP, puts um, Tsai Ing-wen and Chen Jin-ren at a whopping 44% against um, 20% for Eric Ju and Jennifer Wang of the KMT and just 14% for the PFP's James Sung and Xu Xinying. And TVBS, which is more neutral, or some say leans slightly towards, leans towards the KMT, found that after the recent presidential debate, Tsai Ing-wen's support is 40% to Ju's 24% and Sung's 14%. So throughout the year, um, Tsai Ing-wen has given an outstanding performance, and some of that is um, her willingness to improve on her um, campaigning since the, um, 2011 and 2012 when she ran the presidential election then and a lot of us riding on the wave of the massive mistakes that the KMT is making but whatever the case um, Tsai Ing-wen is sort of shining as sort of an outstanding presidential candidate and politician. Yeah, she's made, or certainly made the international news, hasn't she, Ross, this year? Well, she did two significant overseas trips. She went to the United States, and that trip uh, went off without any significant flaws, which is better than her previous trip uh, as a presidential candidate to Washington, D.C. in 2011. And she made a significant trip to Japan, where, where she met with some uh, some very important political and government officials. And uh, as Jane said, she's been doing well. She hasn't committed any flaws, although I think we should keep in mind that her current poll number is basically about what she polled when she lost the election uh, four years ago. So uh, is she ahead because people simply want to change a political party, which is very normal in democracy, and it's happened here in Taiwan already, and uh, it could happen in the U.S. next November. Uh, simply, uh, people are tired of one side and they want to switch to the other side. We don't know yet. You know, we'll, we'll know after the election, and 
when we get actual voter feedback, but uh, we should be looking at what kind of honeymoon period she will have. So if the public really loves her and she's outstanding, then uh, she'll probably have a long honeymoon period. But if the public is impatient, especially with the uh, negative economic news, if she doesn't make some changes then or, or, or bring about some positive results in a very quick period of time, then the public is going to turn on her just the way they turned on Mying Joe. Right, moving on from a meeting in Singapore, bad economic news and politics. The year's horrific news was, of course, the fire at the Formosa Fun Coast Water Park. 500 people were injured and 15 people are so far, well, they died due to injuries. Most of them horrifically burned in this. Ross, explain to our listeners what happened. Uh, This has become a popular activity in many parts of the world, an outdoor large activity, usually with music and dancing. And and, uh, there's colored powder that that is uh, blown across a very large crowd. and, And the heat from the light seems to have ignited the the powder that was used resulting in in a a big fireball that uh, injured uh, so many hundreds of people and and unfortunately caused 15 deaths. And uh, it was one of those moments where where you turn on the news and you see this headline flashing across and and you question whether you're reading it properly because it was just such a shock that that so many people could be injured within seconds. And and, sadly, so many of the the injured and and the deceased were were very young people. These, These were teenagers and university students, people in their 20s. Um, it was just a really shocking and, and, and sad event. And then, uh, as often happens in Taiwan, we, we have politics intervening. We have you know, people pointing their fingers at, at whether or not regulatory authorities were doing a proper job in regulating the park and its safety measures. Uh, the, the people behind the event are going through the judicial system. So uh, certainly there'll be people who are dissatisfied with whatever penalties the court system gives the uh, organizers of the event. There was a debate about whether Japanese doctors should be allowed to come to Taiwan to to help uh, lend their expertise in, in treating burn victims. And uh, that became a political and foreign relations issue arising from this incident. And then President Ma transited the United States on a trip and he brought back some U.S. doctors. So it seems that U.S. doctors were, were okay, but Japanese doctors weren't. Uh, so there, there, there are a lot of issues here in, in, in the ongoing question about you know, management of public events in Taiwan, not, not just from this incident, but there were several others over this year as well that, that also um, kept putting this issue of, of, of management and safety uh, at the forefront. And moving on to number five or number one on our list, whichever way you look at it, defense issues critical for Taiwan and an arms package that was announced this year, the first time in four years, Jane. Yes, that's right. The 1.83 billion arms deal was the first time the US had sold Taiwan arms in four years. And um, although there wasn't any um, game changer, weaponry that was a game changer, for example, help with building submarines or fighter jets, say the F-16CDs, it was still hugely significant given that Taiwan's about to have an election and a pro-independence party or what was once a pro-independence party, it's obviously moderated stances, about to win. So in that context, I think this was a very big story. Um, But of course, it wasn't, like you said, it wasn't a game changer. The equipment they gave them wasn't a game changer. Yes. And some could argue, Ross, like I'm sure you're going to, (laughs) some of the equipment was actually quite outdated. Yes. Uh, Well, uh, there's a replacement helicopter for one that crashed. So (laughs) we're trying to maintain Taiwan's quantitative uh, abilities um, by but uh, as you noted, there, there, there wasn't any new or, or, or frankly, terribly lethal technologies here. Uh, some, some missiles that have 
been uh, in existence for for decades or, or frigates. Um, it's just not something that's going to scare China. Let's be very frank. And it did, of course, the arms deal did in America come under question because basically their questions asked about you've left it four years to have an arms package sale to Taiwan, and this is all you've given them. Well, it was something on President Obama's to-do list. Obviously, not a high priority, but there was some congressional pressure to approve some form of an arms sales package to Taiwan. And now that we're getting at the end of President Obama's uh, tenure, uh, he, you know, he accomplished this task, and it makes it go away as far as his relations with with Congress and move on to other issues. And uh, we, we should keep in mind, President Obama does value the relationship with China that he's been trying to build. And uh, he knew this would be uh, annoying to China. So, you know, he kind of buried it at the tail end of this year. And, uh, you know, he's going to try and focus on China relations, not Taiwan issues going forward. But of course, something that won't go away for the US, China or Taiwan are the South China Sea issues. Mm. And of course, this year, last month, in fact, the Taiwanese government opened a new wharf on the Spratly Island of Taiping, if you use its Taiwanese, no, Taiwan Chinese Mandarin name, Taiping Island. Its correct name, Ituabu, I believe it's called. They opened the wharf there. They also opened a lighthouse. Now, the opening of the wharf and the lighthouse and plans that are still up in the air to extend the runway there, of course, this is stepping on everybody's toes, Jane, really, isn't it? Yes. Um, well, the US sort of recently warned Maying Zhou, like the original plan was for Maying Zhou to actually visit Taiping Island. Um, he was supposed to visit a few weeks ago and that was called off and the Interior Minister visited instead. But the US sort of still issued some kind of warning and said that he ho- they hoped that Taiwan would contribute to peace in the area and things like that. So... Yes. Um, Ma's stance on the South China Sea is, I think, a bit more ambiguous than the US would like. Um, he's very low-key about you know, Taiwan's claims, and he's not sort of 100% with the US or with China. So. Well, it'll be, interesting, also, to, well, as you say, it'll be interesting to see how, how President, uh, if she wins President Tsai, would, would approach these issues. Uh, some people in the DPP, they're obviously focused on, on Taiwan Island, and they're not as interested in upholding the historic claims of the Republic of China, which is what the, the South China Sea claims are. They date from when, when the nationalist government was still in China. Uh, but there, there, there's a strong argument to be made that Taiwan needs to maintain these claims as part of its efforts to make sure the world knows that Taiwan still is a sovereign country. Uh, and part of that is maintaining these claims. Right. And of course, they did. the government did say after it opened the wharf there, that the reason it opened it and expanded it to be able to deal with 3,000 tonne of frigates was for humanitarian reasons. Well, the, the government has been promoting its efforts on Taiping Island as, as you know, green and, and self-sustaining, etc. And, and they want to use it. They say they want to use it as a showcase for, for those kinds of activities. So uh, we'll, we'll see. It's, it's definitely a flashpoint in this region. Uh, and uh, again, Taiwan has a claim and, and some people say they need to maintain that. Yeah, I think one of the key things about making um, Taiping Island a green island is they want to prove that Taiping Island is livable. Because if it's livable, it's entitled to an exclusive economic zone of 200 um, nautical miles. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Yes, under the UN law of the sea, of of course. Uh, Taiwan's not not a party to these things, but um, uh, the the truth is there there is fresh water on Taiping Island. Yes, food and animals, livestock um, can be kept there or food could be grown. So uh, I think 
most people believe it really is an island, which which increases the significance compared to some of the other disputes in the South China Sea, which are are, are truly are rocks. But Taiping really is an island; it's not a rock. Yeah, but the Filipino arbitration case, I think, in the memorial, um, they argued that the Taiping Island was just a reef, and that worried the government here a lot. So they're trying to prove that Taiping Island is livable. So they're talking about all the livestock they keep there and things like that. So. Right, there you go, Ed. We have a meeting in Singapore, bad economic news, politics, both from the DPP and the KMT this year, the horrific Formosa Fun Coast water park fire, and a defence deal, and the South China Sea, all of which will probably be repeating itself next year. This year, rather, I should say this year, because it's January now, isn't it? But, of course, the story of the year, as far as I was concerned, was that of the poor 12-year-old chap who was walking round an art exhibition this year and he tripped over holding his cup of fizzy pop. <laughs> and where did he put his arm, Ross? Tell us. It went right through a f- expensive painting that was on display that had come all the way from Europe. It did. The, um, apparently a 350-year-old Paolo Popora oil on canvas work called Flowers. And apparently that cost Jane one and a half million dollars. You saw this, I take it. You must have seen this on television. This I year. did, but the 12 year old boy, he's probably pretty lucky because the organisers of the family didn't have to pay. I mean, they probably wouldn't have been able to pay, but at least the organisers sort of let them off the hook in that way. Yes. There you go. Taiwan went viral this year. A kid falls through a painting. <laughs> Anyway, that was our quick look and all that time allows us to do on our top stories from Taiwan this year. And I have been joined in the studio this evening by Jane Rickards from The Economist. Thanks, Gavin. And Ross Feingold. Uh, Thank you and Happy New Year. And there we go. We'll be back next week with a proper Taiwan this week, looking at what's been happening in Taiwan in the seven days that are going to take place between now and then. So there you go. Good night. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.